0: Welcome back. This is Mlex's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories around the globe. My name is James Paniki. I'm Mlex's Asia Pacific senior editor, and it's great to be with you again. Now, as corruption and embezzlement scandals go, the 1MDB affair was breathtaking in both its scale and its audacity. One Malaysia Development Berhad was a Malaysian government-run strategic development company. And in 2015, then Prime Minister Najib Razak was accused of channeling funds from 1MDB into personal bank accounts. A total of 4.5 billion US dollars went missing. Most of it is still unaccounted for. Najib Razak has since been found guilty of seven charges relating to the affair, and a businessman at the centre of the scandal is still on the run. But how could this happen? How could so much money be funnelled into foreign bank accounts without setting off alarm bells? Those questions have been central to a US prosecution of commercial bank Goldman Sachs under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And over the past week, that prosecution culminated in the imposition of a $2.9 billion US dollar fine on the bank – The bulk of that penalty will remain in the US, but some of it will be spread across enforcement agencies in the UK and in Asia. The Goldman Sachs fallout is a global regulatory story, and our reporters have been covering it with their usual panache. We'll cross to London and Hong Kong in just a moment, but let's kick off the conversation with Richard Vanderford an MNEX journalist covering courts in New York. Okay, Richard, now give me an overview of the Goldman Sachs 1MDB settlement. What do we need to know?
1: Uh, The first thing that probably would catch anyone's eye is the the top-line figure. It's a $2.9 billion resolution. Uh, It involves work that Goldman did for a Malaysian development fund underwriting three bond offerings. Uh, That was in 2012, 2013. Uh, A lot of the money from those bond offerings, uh, the bond offerings totaled about $6 billion dollars, uh, in bonds, and a lot of the money from those bond offerings was diverted, uh, stolen by people associated with Goldman, uh, and then some of that money diverted into bribes. The DOJ estimates about $1.6 billion in bribes came out of that money. There were individuals charged in connection with it uh, in the United States in 2018. One of them, uh, charges are still pending, and uh, he's,
0: he's looking to go to trial. So the DOJ's argument was that Goldman should have picked up on the signals. It should have had a culture of compliance that would have alerted it uh, to the risks involved, and it should never have signed off on this deal, right?
1: Yeah, not not that the um, necessarily the deal itself uh, was bad, but that there were certain red flags um, that that something improper was occurring, and that that Goldman personnel apart from the personnel who are alleged to be sort of the, the most serious crooks, ignored those uh, red flags. Goldman itself acknowledged that it, it had compliance failures uh, in connection with this in, in a pretty unusually contrite statement it re- released in connection with the resolution. Okay, so what
0: agencies were involved in the investigation internationally? It wasn't just the DOJ, obviously. And why is that volume of cooperation noteworthy?
1: Well, yeah, a top uh, DOJ official noted that it was uh, there was 10 agencies involved, including the, the DOJ. That was a record number in a global resolution. Um, there was the usual characters of, uh, of agencies in the United States. The DOJ was involved. The Securities and Exchange Commission was involved. Uh, the New York Department of Financial Services, uh, the Federal Reserve was involved. But there was also agencies in the United Kingdom, uh, a couple there. Uh, authorities in Singapore and Hong Kong were involved as well. Apart from that, uh, the the DOJ actually thanked authorities in even more places, including um, France, Guernsey, one of the Channel Islands, uh, Luxembourg, and Switzerland. So it was a very global effort. Mm. Okay, so we're talking
0: about this headline figure of two point nine billion dollars. Uh, it's a massive penalty. How does that figure compare with past actions? What's the trend there?
1: It's, it's large. It joins other large actions. So it's not so large that you would say, wow, this is completely unheard of. Uh, earlier this year, Airbus was involved in a $3.9 billion settlement that involved, uh, in part, bribery allegations. Ericsson last year uh, agreed to pay more than $1 billion in connection with an FCPA case. Brazilian state-owned energy company Petrobras in 2018 reached a $1.8 billion foreign corruption settlement. So It's a large settlement. There's a trend towards these more than $1 billion settlements. Uh, Most of the largest settlements in FCPA history have happened fairly recently, which is interesting. It's a law that was on the books since 1977. Serious enforcement uh, didn't really start until the 2000s, and now it is, in the past few years, very serious enforcement in terms of the largest settlements.
0: Okay, so all of this tells us that in terms of the significance of the case, we're really talking about the value of proactive compliance, right? Because smaller fines could ultimately be uh, rationalised as the cost of doing business, but 2.9 billion US dollars, it's, it's different. Uh, the DOJ is trying to drive home a message here, right?
1: right. Yeah, I think there's been, uh, the DOJ has has innovated a program that they create very strong incentives towards cooperating with them and and coming forward proactively. There's been sort of a drumbeat from DOJ officials that that you need to self-report, you need to cooperate, and you need to remediate. And if you do those things, a a company can receive a declination or presumption of a declination that that nothing will happen in terms of um, of a financial penalty potentially and the um, DOJ will go after just executives but if you don't do those things then you're you're potentially going to see a multi-billion dollar penalty as you've seen in this case so i think the DOJ is trying to make it really easy for the the people at companies who are working on these budgets to say okay well we can invest in a compliance program and you know potentially avoid something in the billions of dollars, depending on the severity of the conduct down the line. Mm.
0: And what about the internal culture at Goldman? Uh, for example, what actions did uh, Goldman take in terms of punishing executives?
1: Well, I think that was that was a notable takeaway that, um, that surprised some people who watch Wall Street, that the, the board, it, actually when Goldman made a statement, the board also made a statement sort of expressing their disappointment in what had occurred. Um, they they said they would claw back money not only from the people who have been accused of criminal involvement in the scheme, but also from the former CEO of Goldman, the former chief financial officer, and from the current uh, CEO of Goldman. And they said that money would amount to about $174 million total. So, like a signaling there that they're taking this seriously.
0: Richard, thank you, as always, for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. I'll speak to you soon.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: MLEX reporter Richard Vanderford speaking to us from New York. And you know it's getting serious when senior executives start to lose their bonuses. Okay, this is MLEX's weekly regulatory podcast. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. I'm James Paniki. And listening into that conversation were Martin Coyle, an MLEX senior correspondent covering anti bribery and corruption from London, and Ben Lucas, an MLEX ABC reporter in Hong Kong. Martin, let's start with you. Uh, firstly, tell our listeners what part of the penalty pie went to the UK. How much money did London get?
2: Hi, James. So, yeah, the, the um, UK imposed a fine of uh, £96.6 million, pounds, to be precise, which is. 126 million dollars so that was jointly imposed by the financial conduct authority and the prudential regulatory authority and that was part of this whole uh, coordinated global resolution apart part of the uh, multi-million dollar fine
0: Mm. it's a lot of money obviously but still comparatively small given the size of the penalties elsewhere
2: why is that well yeah as you say it's about 5% of the total it's it's comparatively small but you know it's still a big it's still quite a big fine for the uk um now i, I think the, the the uk became involved uh, or or took a part of this settlement because um although the transaction took place in asia and it was you know a lot of it was us based as well so the us and malaysia took the largest slice of the pie um the the deals were actually signed off and reviewed by um Goldman executives in London. So that brought in the involvement of the FCA and the the PRA who regulate the bank in the UK. Um, And although um, it was just a kind of review stage in the UK, out of the $567 million in fees Goldman made on the deal, a hefty slice, $91 million was booked as profit in London. So this is what... Uh, led to the near 100 million pound fine in the UK.
0: And so it was more than just a peripheral involvement. There was clearly um oversight in London and that is obviously why those fines were imposed. Uh, ben, let's uh, briefly talk about the fines imposed in Singapore and Hong Kong. We should firstly say that Hong Kong is in fact separate to the global penalty, right? So it's not a slice of that multi-million multi-billion dollar pie, but it was in fact a separate consideration. Tell me something about that. Hi, James. Yeah, well, it's quite interesting
3: really because the fine in Hong Kong is accounted for in the DOJ's deferred prosecution agreement. But um, when I spoke to the uh, press officers at the Securities and Futures Commission in Hong Kong, they were keen to emphasize that this was um, separate. And um, I think another point that came out as well, I know that um, when you were speaking with Richard earlier, you mentioned about he you know, all the other agencies that were involved in this. And the DOJ will normally sort of give a little hat tip or a thank you to all the agencies that help. And that didn't happen in the case of Hong Kong. So, you know, there are all these signs that potentially that, you know, there's a little bit of distance there Mm. at the Uh, moment, and that does seem to be separate.
0: Yeah, well, do we know why that is? Is this really just a a fraught diplomatic relationship between mainland China and the rest of the world, or is there something more to it?
3: Yeah, it's it's not entirely clear. Both of uh, the DOJ and the SFC haven't really sort of um, commented any further on on that sort of. You know, apparent um, distance, but yeah, of course, this comes at a time when um, diplomatic tensions are there between the U.S. and China, and the U.S. has been implementing sanctions on Hong Kong officials um, over the National Security Law here. So that's kind of going on in the background, but yeah, so it's a little bit of a, an unknown at the moment.
0: We should point out that when we say SFC, we're talking about the Securities and Futures Commission in Hong Kong. Right? Yes, um, yes. Now, this is the biggest fine uh, ever issued by the SFC, is that correct?
3: Yes, uh, I believe the uh, next biggest fine before that was against uh, HSBC in 2017. Uh, and that was 400 million Hong Kong dollars. So that's about 51 uh, million US. So again, you know, a huge jump in the size of fines there from uh, from in Hong Kong.
0: And we'll return to Hong Kong in just a moment. Uh, but what about Singapore in just a few words, the city state was part of the global penalty, right? So yes, what part of that penalty? What part of the what slice of the pie did it receive? Uh, so the Singapore government will get 122
3: million dollars uh, as part of the uh, settlement, and Singapore government was very keen to emphasise that it, that it was part of the DPA. But there's a, an interesting aspect of the Singaporean sort of side of the settlement is that. Uh, 36 month con- quote conditional warning in lieu of prosecution. Now, this is the it's the equivalent of sort of, as I understand it, of sort of accepting a caution. And this is what Keppel Corp got back in 2017 when it was fined by uh, the US as part of a joint settlement with the Brazilian and Singapore authorities as well. But when that happened. The government really wanted to uh, implement deferred prosecution agreements, and it did. And they are now part of the uh, toolkit available uh, to prosecutors there. But it wasn't given this time, uh, and so far the authorities have sort of not commented on what on why
0: that was the case. But it's kind of an interesting observation that that comes out there. Does it ultimately matter whether it's a conditional warning or a deferred prosecution agreement? I mean, a fine is a fine, and they'll have to pay it, right? I
3: don't, I don't, I don't think it is uh, potentially. A huge, a huge impact in this case. I think what's interesting is is that a lot of the talk about deferred prosecution agreements has been, you know, other countries that have though that settlement mechanism will be more easily able to enter into um, multi-jurisdictional settlements with the US if they are leading on it, or with the UK if they are leading on it. And so this shows that again, that maybe perhaps Singapore is very comfortable with just using the, this thing that they have at the moment. Again, a little bit unknown. So yeah, we'll have to wait and see if they ever. Uh, come back with any answers there.
0: Okay, Martin. Returning to you in London. Let's talk specifically about what UK regulators concluded that Goldman had done wrong. Was it a carbon copy of what Richard was just talking about now, or were there differences when compared to the US situation?
2: Uh, thanks, James. Just so yeah, just listening to Richard there. So essentially, it's it's the same, but there's a there's a kind of UK um, spin on it as the um, the executives there were. You know, involved in the sign-off on the deal. So um, uh, it was all down to risk management failings, um, essentially. So this included uh, poor communication with the regulators before, during and after the deal. So the FCA said um, that Goldman had signed off on this huge deal um, despite the significant risks involved. There were clients involved in this deal that they had previously identified as being risky. Um, and and indeed the bank had previously turned away a, a client who they thought was a bit dodgy and they later, who was later linked to the transaction. Now, interestingly, um, Goldman executives were warned after the deals uh, had closed about possible bribery linked to one MDB, uh, you know, as well as other other potential misconduct. And although the deals had gone ahead, the bank still had a duty to inform its compliance function and its risk management function and in turn uh, regulators about these issues uh, and it seems that they they didn't do that
0: and it didn't so in in other words the the fca so the financial conduct authority uh, said it wasn't just the the original sin it was Compounded in a way by the fact that it wasn't reported later on in the process.
2: Exactly, exactly. So there, there was a lot of negative publicity surrounding 1MDB. I mean, it was all over the, it was all over the papers. Everyone was saying, "What, what, what's this, uh, this all about?" This publicity, the, these red flags, were seemingly ignored and not, not escalated.
0: Mm. Ben, does this sound uh, familiar in the Hong Kong uh, context? Was the reasoning given by the SFC? similar to what uh, Martin was just describing in the London context?
3: Yeah, there were very, very, very similar uh, reasonings, um, you know, quote, serious lapses and deficiencies in the sort of compliance and anti-money laundering um, controls that, you know, all these things, uh, you know, the red flags have been raised, but they were ignored. Uh, there was the negative media reports, which the SFC mentioned, which Goldman has sort of, you know, brushed to one side. So, yeah, very similar things were were picked up there. Mm.
0: Now, rightly or wrongly, Hong Kong's enforcers have been seen as not particularly enthusiastic in their pursuit of uh, 1MDB. Uh, Have they been slow to react? Is that a conversation that people are having in Hong Kong? I think that's
3: definitely been an an observation that has been it's been made for a while now. For example, um, in Singapore, Uh, they withdrew the banking licences of BSI Bank and Falcon Bank Back in 2016, now they handled some of the proceeds from these bond deals, and so you know that's that's four years that we've been waiting for significant action. And even when uh, Tim Leisner was disqualified from working in the financial sector in Singapore, it was only months later that it then he was disqualified in Hong Kong. Um, so I think this action, um, a lot of people have been waiting for some action like this for a long time. Um, so yeah, it, but it's definitely it's definitely
0: slow. Uh, But could things be changing? I mean, could this uh, penalty indicate that perhaps the uh, regulator or the the regulators, plural, in Hong Kong might be now more willing to take this kind of action and to move a bit faster?
3: Um, It's it's unclear whether they're going to be moving um, faster uh, or issue bigger penalties. I think penalties have definitely grown in Hong Kong for financial misconduct. The size of the penalty in Hong Kong, is still it's still unclear how it was calculated. They've not disclosed the actual calculations there as to how it all came together. So again, a little bit of uncertainty is how it's got to the size that it has. But I think certainly, you know, uh, financial crime sort of experts in Hong Kong are sort of saying, you know, there's definitely an upward trend of fines by the SFC, the HKMA, that's the Hong Kong Monetary Authority here, the uh, banking regulator as well. So yeah, th- there's that upward trend. But again, I think it's... Um, Yeah, unclear whether we're going to see you know huge fines and quicker reactions. Uh, For example, in the FinCEN files, you know some of the conduct that was uh, highlighted in that, you know the the, uh, HKMA has not you know come out to issue um, quick statements and you know call out any of the banks you know for their conduct in there which happened in Hong Kong. Um, So yeah, I, I I wouldn't say it's you know turning over a new leaf as such. We'll have to have to wait and see.
0: I think. Martin, uh, finally, you heard what Richard had to say about the DOJ hoping that this will bring about behavioural changes. Is that the message uh, that uh, is coming from the FCA in the UK as well? I mean, are they hoping that this will lead to a better approach on the part of uh, banks when it comes to uh, governance and internal processes?
2: Well, maybe, James. I mean, we have these these fines and you know, they they come along periodically, and no no one really kind of blinks an eye at you know over here over a hundred million pound fine, or indeed you know at, at you know in the US or the global settlement uh, you know multi billion dollar fine. And we had these we had these um, resolutions, as Richard mentioned, with the Airbus um, case, which was in, you know involved global regulators. So you know it, it it's hard to say we have these signs and still misconduct occurs but i i, I think that, that you know there are some um lessons here and although you know this whole uh, 1mdb case is perhaps extraordinary in the scale of wrongdoing and i'm not just i'm not talking about goldman in itself here but the the, ro- the wrongdoing and the, the misconduct is 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 off the scale uh, perhaps but you know there are some lessons here for the banks in the in the UK i mean the these massive mega deals they need to pass the smell test and it, there were plenty of red flags before and after the deal and these were se- seemingly ignored so so banks need to be alive to that fact and it seems that there was more involvement of the deal makers uh in putting together the deal rather than you know the compliance and risk management who who perhaps should have had a greater in-depth look at how how these uh, you know, deals were structured and, and what the particular the, the, the risks the risks are or were so you know the lesson is the failure to assess these risks and then the neglect afterwards to be open with the authorities this is what's led to uh, you know the the uk sanction so although we might not get a situation like this one mdb case i think for other transactions banks need to be alive to these kind of warnings or these dangers
0: Ben, we've talked about Hong Kong and Singapore. Of course, this all unfolded in Malaysia, as Martin has just mentioned in passing. What was the approach there? How did they tackle the Goldman Sachs uh, dimension of this story?
3: Well, in Malaysia, they actually sought to to bring charges. Um, however, um, these were settled in July. That was a 2.5 uh, billion payment to the government plus... A guarantee uh, to help return 1.4 billion um, in assets to the government and this would this was controversial at the time. a lot of people in Malaysia saying that the the government could have tried to get a better deal or you know agree uh, a higher amount, um, but they still managed to get a settlement uh, and you know that that money will be, be coming their way.
0: Okay, Ben and Martin, the Goldman Sachs angle of the 1MDB story has been a great yarn for us to cover really interesting stuff. So thank you uh, to both of you and to the entire Mlex A, B and C team for uh, covering it so closely.
2: Thanks, James. Thank you, James.
0: Martin Coyle and Ben Lucas, who cover anti-bribery and corruption for Mlex from London and Hong Kong, respectively, and will post some of their reporting, along with a very fine piece of analysis by Richard Vanderford. At the MLEx website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's MLEX Marketinsight.com. Just click on the Insight Centre tab for the very best of our journalism. And it would be remiss of me not to tell you that you can subscribe to MLEx Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave a review, tell a family member, and help us spread the news. And apologies if you'd been expecting a slightly different podcast this week. The 1MDB story required our immediate attention, but we hope to resume our regular programming next week. Indeed, we'll be back in your feeds on Friday morning GMT. And if you enjoyed last week's podcast on the DOJ's Google lawsuit featuring Mike Swift and Kushita Vasant, well, you'll be pleased to know that our new special report deals with that very issue. It features the journalism of our US digital and privacy team, Mike Kushita, and the alphabetically listed Mike Acton, Max Fillion, Amy Miller and Dave Pereira. It's on the front page of our website, free to download. You don't have to be a subscriber. And that's it for today. I'm James Paniki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor here at Emlex. Thank you so much for your company. I'll catch you next week. Bye for now.